1 Corinthians uh, chapter 7 and beginning at verse 1. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as as myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. We're going to take a look at that passage in a moment, uh, but let's ask for God's uh, help before we do that. Heavenly Father, thank you that you delight to give your children gifts that are good. Help us this morning to recognize, uh, to use, and to enjoy all the gifts that you have given us for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Uh, Well, as we begin this morning, let me uh, let you into a little bit of a secret. Uh, Sometimes at the beginning of a talk... Uh, The preacher will ask you a question, um, or they will uh, try and get a hook to draw your attention. Um, I'm going to trust this morning that I don't need to do that, uh, given the passage uh, that we've just read. Uh, Instead, let me get you uh, back up to speed uh, with where we got to in 1 Corinthians, which we were studying uh, this time last year, uh, and are jumping back into uh, the middle of the book. Um, So last time, uh, AC12 discovered that H a high-ranking but corrupt police officer. Oh, sorry, that's the wrong recap. Um, and apologies to you if you don't watch Line of Duty um, or if I ruined it for you. Uh, no, back in Corinth, um, Corinth was a large commercial center, um, most critical trading point in Greece, uh, very important to the Roman Empire. It's a city of about 400,000 uh, people. Uh, The church there was planted by the Apostle Paul during his uh, second missionary journey. Uh, And if you want to read more about that, then uh, take a look at Acts 18 uh, this afternoon, and you can see the story uh, of how the church began there. Uh, Paul now is writing uh, from Ephesus, uh, a little bit further away, uh, three years later, back to the church that he's planted. Um, So that's not far off how old we are as a church Um, So if you can imagine, uh, Ken had gone away for the last three years uh, and was writing to us again uh, to address us and to help us go on in the Christian faith. That's kind of what's going on here. Um, It's written to a church that is, quite frankly, in a mess. Uh, The Corinthians are divided. Uh, They're following different leaders. Um, They're arrogant. They're impressed by lofty speech and wisdom And they've got a tendency to lord it over those who they consider weak. Um, They're selfish. They're used to asserting their rights above others. uh, Even going to the extent of suing 
uh, other Christian brothers and sisters in the courts. Uh, And finally, they are sexually all over the place. Uh, They're totally confused. Uh, They're indulging in things like prostitution uh, in the temples, uh, and they're even tolerating incest within the church. And so Paul has written already in 1 Corinthians uh, to address some of those issues. Uh, And he concludes at the end of chapter 6 with these words in chapter 6, verse 20. You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. And this truth uh, that Christians do not belong to ourselves, but rather are people who have been bought uh, with a price, with the precious blood of Jesus, and now to live in a way that honors and pleases him. And Paul now is going to uh, go on to apply that to specific areas of the Christian life, uh, responding to the things that the Corinthians uh, care about and have questions about. I don't know if you noticed in verse 1, but it begins uh, like this, now concerning uh, the matters about which you wrote. Uh, This is, uh, if you like, uh, one side of a conversation that Paul is having with the Corinthians. Uh, They've written to him saying, what about this? How should we think about these things? Uh, And this is Paul's response. So what does Paul say? Uh, Well, the first thing and the first point uh, that we're going to see this morning is that sex is protective. Protective sex in verses 1 to 5. Paul uh, begins uh, with a quote He says, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now, before we go on, can you imagine uh, any conversation uh, today beginning with those words? Maybe it would be good if we just gave up on sex altogether. Now, remember here that Paul is not writing into Victorian England. He's writing to believers in Corinth. This is the Roman Empire. Uh, This is a culture that viewed sex like food, a bodily function, an appetite uh, that is to be satisfied. When and who with, well, that's up to you, particularly if you're a man. Now, Paul is speaking into a culture whose view of sex was not a million miles away from the world that we live in. Now, there's two ways to take uh, this quote. Firstly, uh, that it is Paul speaking, that this is his view. Uh, Certainly that's going to fit in with the high view of remaining single uh, that we're going to see later on. Uh, The second way of looking at it is that this is a view that some of the Corinthians held in the church. uh, That in response to all the sexual immorality and confusion that was going on around them, some of them have said, let's just get rid of sex altogether. Uh, Isn't that a bit dirty? Isn't it unspiritual? It's not entirely surprising uh, if you read uh, chapter 6 and saw all the confusion and difficulty uh, that occurred there. Now, in one sense, whether these are Paul's words or whether he's reflecting uh, on a view that's held in the church, uh, isn't that important? Uh, Because Paul goes on to explain in verses 2 to 5 exactly what he means here. And the first thing he says is that sex should be exclusive. It's good to live without sex, but, verse 2, Paul recognizes that sex is powerful. And that the temptation to sin sexually is strong. And so he prescribes monogamy. Each man should have one wife and each woman her own husband. Now note the way that Paul states that. There's a radical equality here. Perhaps we don't pick it up, but it would have been completely countercultural at the time. Both the man and the woman should have one partner, one wife, one husband. 
The Corinthians could probably uh, have coped with the idea that uh, women, limit themse- women, women limit themselves to one partner. But men, ridiculous, unworkable, unnatural. Perhaps that's how this sounds to you. But the Bible never sells sex short. It's open about how good and about how powerful sex is. But it's also clear about how harmful it can be when it's taken out of its right context. It doesn't say that sex is bad, but it does say that sex should be respected. Sex is designed for an exclusive, lifelong relationship between a man and a woman. It's designed for marriage. Now, one pastor has said that sex is a little bit um, like fire. It's great when it's contained, but when it's on your curtains, it's a disaster. Marriage is where the intimacy of sex is to be enjoyed safely and joyfully. Second, sex is about giving, not getting. Verses 1 to 2 tell us that sex is good, but the proper context for it is marriage. Verses 3 to 5 tell us that therefore sex should be a regular part of married life. Now, Paul doesn't say how regular. That's going to vary from couple to couple and from time to time. And there's going to be some for whom this is a more sensitive issue than for others. Paul's point, though, I think, is clear. And that's this. Sex is important. The body is important. And it shouldn't be seen as somehow unclean, as lesser or as unspiritual. Sex is a good gift from God to be enjoyed. But it's also a gift that is powerful and open to abuse. And Paul takes the temptation that sexual desires provide seriously. And by the way, those temptations don't disappear when somebody gets married. Notice again how careful Paul is to emphasize both the husband and the wife's equal role here. Take a look at verse 3. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Now, let's be clear. There is absolutely no room for abuse here, for one partner forcing themselves upon the other. But neither should sex be stopped entirely unless by agreement, Paul says, and then only for a limited period. Look at verse 5. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement, for a limited time. Sex is not something that should be used as a bargaining chip within marriage. It is not simply a need that has to be satisfied. Rather, sex is a good gift that is to be shared. It's about mutual giving, not the imposition of individual rights. But sex is not everything. Sex is important, but God is ultimate. Married couples, Paul says, may agree uh, to pause their sexual relationships temporarily for one reason, to pray. Sex is important, but our relationship with God is ultimate. And whatever our relationship status is on earth, whether married or single, it's second to our eternal relationship with God. So for those of us that are married, the reason that we should choose to hold back on sex is not uh, as a tactic to get what we want from our partner. It's not because we've become 
apathetic or disinterested. It's not because there are a thousand other things that need our energy or our attention. But rather it's because prayer is so significant, so necessary that even the good gift of sex might be put to one side for a while in order that a man and a wife may come together to pray. When did you last have sex may be a pretty awkward question uh, to ask a couple and for them to answer. But perhaps the question, when did you last take time specifically out to pray together, is even more awkward and perhaps even more searching for us to answer. Sex is important, but God is ultimate. And that leads us on to what Paul has to say in verses 6 to 9. Uh, for those who are not married. And he says to them, there is a better gift than sex and a better gift than marriage. And the chapter began, didn't it, with a quote saying that life without sex uh, is perhaps good. But the last few verses have all been about how sex is good within marriage. Has Paul given up on the idea of life without sex? Has he set that on one side? Not at all. Look at what he says uh, in verse 6. Uh, to the Corinthians, and to us. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as myself am. Paul recognizes that sex is powerful and that the temptation is real. And so he prescribes monogamy. But he says all this as a concession, not as a command. Paul's wish is not that everyone would get married, In fact, Paul's desire seems to be that everyone could be like him, single, unmarried, living a life without sex. Now, is Paul saying that everyone is going to be single? No. Is Paul saying that marriage is bad? Again, no. Is Paul saying that singleness is better than marriage? Yes. I think he is saying that. He really is saying that life without marriage and therefore life without sex is better than life with it. That's a pretty shocking statement, isn't it? For our culture, not being married, well, yeah, maybe we could cope with that, but life without sex, well, that's not really life or not a full life, is it? And just maybe our church culture might say, well, life without sex, maybe that's okay, but life without marriage, without family, without children, without that one person to share our life with intimately, Well, that's not a full life either. So how can Paul say this to us? And how can he say it with a straight face? I wish all of you were single like me. Well, I think we get a clue in what he says next in verse 7. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Singleness, just like marriage, is a good gift from God to be received and to be enjoyed. And there's blessing for those who choose to do so. That was why we had that reading earlier from Isaiah 56. This spoke to those who were eunuchs, for those who physically couldn't have sex and therefore didn't have the hope of having children in the future. But Isaiah says to them, there's blessing for you. For those who hold fast to God's covenant, for those who trust in God's promises to them, there's blessing. And there's blessing even beyond having sons and daughters, which is 
what they hoped for and dreamed for most of all. Beyond what we imagine are the greatest blessings of marriage, of family, and of sex, there's something that is better. There is God himself. There is being part of his family, both here on earth as part of a local church family and in heaven. And for Paul, God is the ultimate gift. He is the one that makes life, whether single or married, complete. As we'll go on to see in the rest of this chapter, Paul thinks that singleness is the thing that is going to allow him to go full throttle in pursuit of God, who's worth everything. It's the uh, London Marathon uh, this morning. Uh, And if you listen to some of the interviews that uh, go on with athletes there, you'll often hear them describe themselves uh, as selfish. Everything that they do as a professional athlete is organized around that one goal of, for some reason, choosing to run 26.2 miles around London. Whether it's winning the London Marathon or winning a Premier League title... Everything in their life is organized around that goal. And they often do things like thank their families for putting up with their training regimes, with their travel, with their single-mindedness, with their selfishness. Paul wants God like athletes want a gold medal. And being single allows him to serve and pursue God with absolutely no distractions. I'm going to see more about that in the rest of the chapter. But the point is this, the prize for Paul is God himself. And God is better and more fulfilling and more joyous and more satisfying than anything that we could hope for or imagine. Whether that's a relationship with the person or whether that is a job that satisfies us, whatever it is, is less than God. The problem though is that we don't always choose to believe that, do we? If we're single, then we think that meeting the right person will satisfy, will fix, or will fulfill us. If we're married, then perhaps we think a different person would do those things. Or maybe it's different areas of life. Maybe it's being able to have kids. Maybe it's having financial security. Paul says, no. The thing that we ought to be pursuing is God. That's true whether we're single or whether we're married. There's different ways for us to do it. But Paul is absolutely clear and absolutely pragmatic. He knows that sex is powerful, and so he concludes that if we are aflame with passion, in other words, if sexual temptation distracts us from pursuing God, then it is good to seek marriage. If we are married, then within, if we are married, then within the safe intimacy of that relationship, we should give ourselves to our spouse unselfishly, pausing only to pursue God in prayer. But if God has given us, at least for a period, a gift of life without sex, then we should use that freedom to serve and pursue him without distraction and with all our hearts. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess that some of what we've read in your word this morning is uh, difficult for us to hear. Lord, some of these things relate to things that our hearts are sensitive about. 
And Lord, so I ask this morning that we would trust you as our good heavenly Father who desires what is best for us, to hold on to your promises, to trust in the covenant that you have made with us, and to look to Christ and to his death on the cross as proof of your love for us. Lord, help uh, those of us uh, who are single, Lord, to use that gift, that freedom to pursue you wholeheartedly. And Lord, for those uh, who are married, Lord, help us not to be selfish within our marriages or with unconcern for those uh, who aren't in those relationships. Lord, help all of us uh, to unite together as your family in pursuit of you. In Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen.